Hello, I am very, very excited. Today I have got the author, one of the authors of Dyslexic Advantage, a seminal book in the world of dyslexia over the last decade, Dr. Fernet ID. Uh, I, I, I'm still getting used to pronouncing things correctly, Fernet. It is so great to have you on the podcast here. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm kind of looking forward. I've listened to many of your talks on different podcasts and on YouTube and so on. And I don't really want to necessarily replicate a lot of that. I have been looking forward to speaking to you about Dyslexic Advantage, and I'm very tempted to start talking to you about the book itself. But what I'd really love to hear is, is your dyslexia story. At Dyslexia Explored, we're, we're, there's some podcasts which are all about talking about to professionals about professional advice about dyslexia. They're great. There's others about dyslexia and adulthood. They're great. We're very much in that realm of dyslexia and that between years and and also hearing the story behind dyslexia because sometimes what you need to carry you through is a story that gives you a picture that there's maybe hope and at the end of the <laughs> tunnel and and so on and different people are in different places and so there are many people who might even be in a situation you're in or you were in as a professional and it would just be lovely to hear your story arc where did it all begin you know, what was the turning points, what were the big challenges, and what were the rewards at the end of it? So let's start at the beginning. Where did it all start for you before dyslexia kind of came on your radar? Um, well, my husband and I are both doctors, and so we were in fairly, con I'd say, traditional practices. I was a junior faculty member at the University of Chicago, and actually, I think, so everything all started when we had our own kids, which is what a lot of people <laughs> think about. And, uh, and, you know, when I interviewed for my first faculty job, I was um, six months pregnant. So it was like, at the very start, when I was a faculty member, you know, I was raising my young family. And, and things in the beginning seemed actually pretty easy, you know, before before he went to school, <laughs> you know, it seemed like love learning, our kids love learning and, um, and things were really pretty easy. And, and then we thought, well, this is going to be so easy to put him in school because, you know, because he loves learning, but, but that didn't, that actually didn't work. And so uh, I think we first became interested, the really big picture, we first became interested in learning differences and learning issues and educational contexts when um, our firstborn had trouble with preschool. And, you know, at the time, and so, and here we were, we thought we were university people and, you know, knowledgeable and creating knowledge. And it seemed like the supports available for kids were really poor, <laughs> you know? And I can understand from that perspective, I think if, you know, if you're a doctor at university hospital and, you know, you've got a child seizing or, you know, some unknown whatever that you're trying to fix. And then you see this happy-go-lucky kid in the clinic who's like, you know, you know, they look fine. I talk to them. They're intelligent. You know what? They're learning. Why is there a problem? But the problem came with just going to school. And so I think that unfolded a lot of issues about where, where people were with education 
and um, you know we both had jobs and so it wasn't easy um, and we were also living in a place that was separate from both sets of grandparents so it was difficult to try to manage all these things on our own if if someone if you had a child who was sort of acting up in school or leaving the class or something like that, you know, then it was a big deal because we had to leave work. We had other commitments and things like that. And so I think that was my introduction to really how, how tough it could be. And there was a huge disconnect between what we saw in our, our child at home and what we saw in school when things were acting out. So I, I that was the very big picture. Okay. And that's, that's what led up to The Mislabeled Child. So, okay. So you've written two books, The Mislabeled Child and then Dyslexic Advantage. And what what was, I'm often fascinated about drilling down into the wake up moment. What was the wake up call? What was, was it, an, uh, was there a particular tipping point, a, an experience, a person? What, what was it for you that kind of created that shift? Obviously, your your child, but was it was there anything that sort of suddenly switched you on and said, "I've got to do something about this"? So um, we were still in conventional practice at that time, and at that point in time, we did sort of, in a big picture way, realize, you know, our kids were really important to us, and this lifestyle of sort of really not being in touch with what was happening in school. We we did also do some observations without uh, anyone noticing. And so we could see there was a change that would occur in, in it was our, our son at that time, when he was in this foreign environment versus at home. And some of that, I don't, I don't think we were, you know, this is gradual unfolding, you know, that he had auditory processing difficulties. He had trouble hearing with background noise. I think there was a lot of echoing that happened. And so the classrooms, you know, and so there were things that, and he was very frustrated and, and there was nothing of that at home when, you know, when he was growing up. Although I would say in preschool, we did notice when he went to a, you know, a couple hours a day, church preschool, lovely staff, <laughs> lovely environment, you know, that, that uh, we heard for the first time that, that he, you know, he, so in fact, the teacher says that possible he's deaf. He's not deaf. He can hear really far away, you know, so there are all these disconnects, but it took us a while to realize what the state of the science was, what, you know, how people could help in a situation like ours, you know, and what the immediate impact was on our, on our family and on our son, you know, and so, so that was a, a little unfolding very early on. And, and yet we hadn't changed to a practice of learning, learning specialty. You know, we moved I think when he was probably about, I think he went to kindergarten in Chicago and we moved and, um, and then went to Washington state where we would at least be near one set of grandparents. So, um, so there was really a lot of change there, but still we didn't really have this kind of awakening. I think, I think when problems continued, it wasn't just the, the hearing difficulties, it was frustration. He was dyspraxic and a lot of trouble with handwriting um, and just when we tried taking him to experts and they'd say, oh, his IQ is really up there, you know, but gee, his handwriting is down here. And then we tried all the navigations that we tried to do with, with uh, trying to get the right school environment, trying to get the right 
everything and then trying to get the right help. And, and, and the thing is, is at that time, things have actually, I think it's, it's improved. It's hard to tell whether we know more people who are part of this network, but I think this awareness has really grown up that, you know, it's not just, okay, well, if, if school isn't working, let them run in the woods, you know, kind of thing and just have this free experience. It's not that, I mean, there, there really weren't for us, I guess, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a neurologist, I'm an information wonk. So I like to have information. I wanted to have information. And so, you know, when they tested his IQ testing, I, I thought it was very helpful because he often, you know, there's some people with a high verbal IQ who like to talk all the time, but he didn't, he, you know, so he, he would sort of like, you know, he would experience and, you know, he'd be touched by things and he would be, if he volunteered something, then it was on point, no matter, you know, whether it was conceptual levels above, but, you know, it wasn't like he was going to be, wow, he's really gifted because he wasn't talking much. And, and, and I think in retrospect, I, I do remember back in preschool that uh, they said that there's on when, when we do the free rotate between the free choice tables, he always wanted to be at the painting table. So, you know, so that we knew that he loved that. And now he's an illustrator. But, you know, at that time, we knew he loved that in preschool. But then that went away, like age four, five, six, seven, where he didn't want to draw. He just like give him crayon. He just put it down because he didn't like what he what he could do at that time. Oh. So very complex. And, you know, so we, we just felt like there was this unfolding and understanding who he was as a person, how to develop. And, and still we could also look at the outside and see that, that there were a lot of <clears throat> shortcomings with the way things were, because, you know, a lot of people who might know a lot about learning in general, learning at different ages, weren't sort of awakened to the importance of developing a systematic approach to assessing children and um, giving recommendations in a positive way. As a neurologist, as a resident, there was a, there was a guy who came up with all these really pithy sayings. And, you know, one of them was for a neurologist, diagnose and adios. <laughs> it was a saying that he had, right. you know, and that was the way that was the, that was kind of, and, and being in this kind of savvy situation, I could see, there was a lot of diagnosing and adiosing, you know, like, okay, yes. it's this, this is bye. See you. Good luck. You know, <laughs> and then not giving you any practical information. Well, you do know. you know what? That, that's such a common experience of people when they get their dyslexia assessment, for example, they get their assessment. <laughs> they might be dyslexic. I remember it with my daughter, she's got this 34 page dyslexia assessment. She's 20 years old and she goes, I'm overwhelmed. I don't understand it, you know? And that's one of the reasons why I created the stick shift analogy of, of have you seen that analogy where I talk yes, about dyslexia, so. stick shift and automatic? Yes. Do you think, what do you think of it, by the way? I've, I've never asked you. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's really true. I think there's a lot of things that don't go on automatic, you know, and, and as a result, you're much more conscious of what you have to do. And, and, when we ended at Shifting Gears, so, you know, because this can go on forever, as you say, <laughs> you know, we did have, you know, we, there was a period of transition where I think one, I was, we were working in group practices at that point, and we left the university, where I was able to take one day a week and do learning 
uh, learning assessments, but you know, it's very time consuming. It was hard to kind of manage everything like that. And then the transition to full time. And then, and, and, and I would say, so we saw, we had a couple years where we were seeing all takers for, for learning problems, you know, and then probably a couple can years you, we started. Can you give us a bit of a timeline? Years. How long ago was this, this transition from one day a week to full time? The one day a week probably lasted a couple months. And then, you know, we really wanted to. Was that 20 long. years ago, 10 years, 10 ago? years ago? Yeah, like 20 some odd years ago. Okay. Yeah. So, so, it, you know, the group practice, you know, the, the main reason for leaving the group practice is we decided just for, you know, a better quality education. Honestly, we would homeschool our son. Okay. You know? And at that time, and our, and our daughter, she developed cancer later on, but our daughter at that time was attending school, happiest clam, extroverted, very easy at that point in time. So, so that would allow us to homeschool him. He, was, um, he did well in actually a little private, gifted private school where they knew that he was dysgraphic. And reading was not so difficult for him because if he could silent read, he didn't really like to read out loud. And there's some problems that came in later on, but... And our daughter had some um, some mild dyslexia, so she was the more crazy speller and things like that. But but still, she was so happy and she and gregarious and you know very easy actually to have in a gifted school because you know even if if her spelling dropped down a little bit, her ideas you know sort of buffed her up, and so that was kind of the context for them. But the the real key at at the point initially was me dropping out of practice, so. I could homeschool our son and our, my husband can actually have the regular job. And, and that was how we changed. And then there's a point where uh, we started getting more people than we could possibly. <laughs> and the waitlist started going out over a year and things like that. And then Brock said, you know, this looks kind of fun, you know, <laughs> so why don't we, why don't, why don't I join you in your practice? And so then, though, then we're working together and then, you know, I think he was probably only at it for maybe about a year or so. Then we decided we wanted to, but I had maybe a year longer or something like that. And then he decided he wanted to, maybe we should focus on dyslexia. So the question about that, and we started noticing, so for our own kids, we had them assessed by a colleague, a friend outside, because you can't assess your own kid. And, and so she came up with the mild dyslexia on our daughter's side and dyslexia and dyspraxia on our son's side then but by that time we discovered his hearing difficulties and sensitivities and things like that and we started getting a little bit more of a story on the dyslexia on Brock's side and uh and some of that that also evolved over a couple years I mean part of it was we did almost have a running start on our on our learning practice I remember when we first went from a group practice, you have to sign this thing. You won't take any of your former patients with you because like, oh, so, you know, it was just going to be like, suddenly you decided you're going to hang a, a shingle and then, you know, and see, um, and fo focus on learning differences. And so I remember talking to Brock, okay, well, I'm starting this practice as of this week, you know, so, so what do I do? We can't have any anyone that I'd seen before. Should I advertise? He's like, no, I don't see any reason to advertise. Just give a talk somewhere. So so I gave a talk and about half the, the people there all came to my clinic in the beginning. And then it was word of mouth. Everyone 
told each other. And that was, that was it. And then, you know, over within a year, by the time Brock joined me, people were flying in from out of state and all this kind of stuff. I think it's spread in the gifted community. There's a, there's kind of a feeling like, you know, the more gifted, the more kind of extremes and abilities and, and, and weaknesses kind of thing like that. And so then we started seeing, you know, after a while, people who flew in, you know, exotic discrepancies and peaks and valleys and, and, um, and a lot of them, you know, were, it's fascinating because we could talk to the parents. It was really helpful in a lot of different ways to join practice with Brock. He had a very different, you know, he thinks very different from me. And, um, and so we're always like, you think this, I think that, you know, <laughs> and, and it was really helpful. Yeah. it. Yeah. And, you know, and the downside of doing a practice, the solo practice was that I could even, I could only interview people all together and then do testing. But the advantage is we, we could switch. So, he oh, would get so you could test. do the children and he could do the adults and, yeah, and then we switch. Ah. And so then, so I would go in first and he would get this extensive family history. I'd come out and tell them what I, I, I'd seen. And then he'd go in and do his part of the testing. And that was, Perfect. I mean, Fantastic. it's still, you know, it's still, it, it's still a hard way to practice because the reports are so time consuming, Yes. You know, but, but it was satisfying and it wasn't too long after. So then we decided we would fo focus on dyslexia because there was so much new coming out in the science. You could explain the science to the, to the kids. You could tell them, you know what? You're really good at this. You are really good at this, you know, and, and you could see them. Everything's like, Voop, the world changes, you know, suddenly they can say, you know, I, I was putting this label on this and this is not true. And now I see, I see, I really am good at this. Okay. So and I think that was important. Very so satisfying. Timeline. We are now what? 10, 15 years ago. Mm, maybe something like 15. Yeah. Some, okay. Uh, yeah. And you know, my favorite book, on dyslexia in the whole world, obviously, is The Dyslexic Advantage, and you should all read it. I, I was speaking to my dentist, yes, a few days ago, and my dentist was telling me about Dyslexic Advantage, <laughs> and he was telling me that he had just given his copy to his son, okay, and he told his son, son, read this book as if it's a textbook. And then you'll really get a lot out of it because it's really, you know, like I read a couple of pages. I have to go away sometimes and just my mind's blown. And I'm like, I've got to process that, you know, because you can, and you've got this wonderful little formula going on here where, you know, I've done, we've done a book club on this, you know, <laughs> I don't know if you know that, but we, we take five pages and just talk about those five pages because you've kind of got a story in a in every five pages, you've got like a little story, an analogy, and then uh, a sort of a light bulb moment. And it just goes all the way through the book like that. I love the way you've done that. So the misdiagnosed child came before this. This was published in 2011, mm -hmm. which is now nine years ago. I think so. So the misdiagnosed child how mislabeled child mislabeled child sorry mislabeled what's the what tell us the story of the mislabeled child then so the mislabeled child the the central metaphor is is lenses you know 
it, it labels are like lenses and that if you if you mislabel somebody then you tend to see things in the in it can either be clarifying or it can be completely distorting yes so that, that was the idea behind that and the mislabeled child came out of all comers who walked in the clinic so we felt like we would try to do some in-depth information but we we're only seeing because it was a it was a big deal it's always too if people came from out of town they had to be in town for two days because there's there's you know really full testing um kind of like a day and a half of testing and then the the summary at the end and and also there was the fact they'd go away and they'd be like what just happened <laughs> you know what i mean would, you know it was just kind of overwhelming and so we realized and also we couldn't scale up we we only saw it was it was concentrated we saw families twice two times a week or something, occasionally three times a week. And then all the rest was filled with reports. So we wrote the book to try to do this kind of general thing. What happens? What should you consider? Because a lot of these things, as far as we were concerned, were not on the map. I mean, our son was clearly not on the map. I mean, dysgraphia is an entire chapter. Auditory processing is an entire chapter. Sensory processing, autistic-like behaviors is, is an entire chapter. Dyslexia, an entire chapter. You know, so so that was the idea behind the book is to be able to, to see, you know, from from what we could see was the you know state-of-the-art knowledge about nervous system. I should also say too, if I really go back. My dad was a neurologist, and so we had a long interest in trying to understand things, you know, everyday life from a neurobiological perspective. Not neurological, neurological implies disease, but just from your neuro neurobiology. And, you know, he was a great bedside teacher. You know, he took me around on rounds when I was in high school and just a great observer of life. And so, you know, I, I'm sure that that impacted me as well. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. One question I've got is, is Brock dyslexic? He's got some mild dyslexia. Okay. He, when he was in graduate school, he had a notation. It's a shame that your spelling doesn't live up to the quality of your ideas. Oh. <laughs> so he got burned with that one. So, but, you know, he, he, now he never had accommodations or anything like that. Obviously became a doctor, but it's mild, you know, and, okay. uh, but, but it, it was interesting over the years as we we did, you know, uncover things over time. He began to interrogate his father who discovered his dyslexia, you know, and talked about, you know, he never read books and accountant. And, and then we went to some family reunions where we were interviewing people uh, and finding more dyslexic in the family. Okay. Could, could you talk just briefly about something that I see in America, like this podcast, people are listening in America, UK, Australia, but you're in America. Uh, did you say Chicago? Mm -hmm. No, you're in New York now? Now we're in Washington State. Washington. ADD and dyslexia. That's a big thing in America. And what I've noticed some parents, some of the people in Bullet Map Academy in the community there, we, we, the parents are like, the, the, I know my friend's child is dyslexic, but my friends insist that it's ADD and that's it. They're more comfortable with the, the, with the label ADD than dyslexia. 
Do you have any thoughts on that yourself? I mean, did you did you cover that in the book? Forgive me for not reading it. I'm going to go away and read it. <laughs> no, it's fine. You know, when when they do studies of you know research based studies looking at the criteria, so so dyslexia is usually determined by you know and. That obviously is open up to like a lot of people are calling things dyslexia based on all sorts of things, but traditionally it's been based on neuropsychiatric, neuropsychological testing and, and ADD is a checklist. Um, so it's like behaviors, you know, things that, you know, fidgety, things like that. It's not like they're actually doing formal testing. That's, that's the, the state of the art. Now researchers are doing things to look at working memory distractibility, sustained attention, but that's not part of the, the standard DSM way to diagnose. To diagnose ADD, it's a checklist, a behavioral checklist. So when you do things like that with people who are meet criteria for dyslexia, there is an overlap between ADD, ADD-like behaviors. And so you know, that, that is a question. There is also an overlap between dyslexia and dyspraxia, dyslexia and dyscalculia. Um, so there, there are these overlaps and everyone knows about them. So it, it is possible to be in both, you know, camps in terms of identification. So there are some things that will apply and some things that won't apply, you know? And, you know, I think our approach about about mislabeled child, that was really an attempt to convey what we were doing in the clinic based on standard psychometric testing and observation and things like that. We were trying to look at what the different categories are and, you know, what the solution should be. So we do touch a little bit on medication. There are a lot of people who feel strongly about medication, some people who don't. You've got people who say it really helped, they're on for a while. Other people say, you know, this is gonna help, I'm not never gonna go off the medication. But about half of the people who go on medication go off it, and people recognize that. And, you know, in our practice, you know, we don't, I, I would I would say it was pretty unusual to be saying medicine was our first choice for things. Most often people came in on medication and they were looking for what they could do while on medication. Sometimes they were gearing up to try and they wanted to have testing before they went on and things like that. And so, you know, I would say that, that, um, that there are, there are reasons in a lot of cases, it was situational where, a family was trying to get a student in a particular classroom situation where they were worried they would leave. And so they wanted to try medication no matter what. They had the family practice guy on board and they just wanted to establish where they were before the trial and then check back after. Okay. So, you know, I mean, I, you know, there, there, usually what we would do in situations like that is really explain the status of, of, the research and observations. I mean, what we were opposed to was seeing some kids who were having meltdowns in school who were on three psychoactive drugs. You know, you get like nine-year-olds who are on three neuroleptics because of tantrums or something like that. And that was awful because you're getting side effects from all these powerful medications on little kids. So 
that's what we really didn't like. But, you know, I think this question about in certain situations, a lot of kids would tell us, you know, it makes my handwriting better, you know, and, and, and I can understand that. I, the question is, 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 you know, do we know the long-term impact of the medications? And that, that is more open to question, I think. This podcast is sponsored by dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com, which helps you organize yourself creatively with a productivity system for Apple devices. So let's go. So we've talked about the where it all began, pre, pre-children. Then the <laughs> children became the, the wake-up call, and then you transitioned into homeschooling, and then started to focusing in on these assessments and Brock joined you uh, in assessing. So you're homeschooling and assessing at the same time. And also, you know, helping people a couple of days a week as well. And then the dyslexic advantage. What, what, when did, when was the dyslexic, what, what spurred on the dyslexic advantage? Because we would spend so much time talking to the parents and the parents were pretty extraordinary and then and sometimes it'd be, I mean, I was selective because, you know, when our list got longer, you know, our prices went up to shorten the list. Then we started getting people flying in. And so we'd get sort of like really creative, innovative people. And, you know, and then, you know, but junior was having meltdowns in preschool, you know what I mean? So it was like this, or, or the teen example, you know, doesn't want to do anything and is sort of acting up in school or can't, you know, is get failing foreign language, things like that. So it's a complicated, you know, mix. All these situations are different, but, but we really became intrigued by the positive side and the fact that traditional medicine or education focused on the negatives, you know, and as parents, you say, how can you focus on the negatives? Because there's so much positive that's there to be developed. And, you know, and then we thought, you know, this is, this is, uh, this is otherwise an unhealthy way to focus on things that strengths became really fascinating. And they're often, if you talk to the parents, they were very atypical learners themselves. And some of that was waking that up because some people hadn't said that to their spouse before. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people, you know, even Henry Winkler, I think mentioned this, you know, basically I didn't really talk about this before, but this looks like me, you know? And I think that that awareness of the parents and the fact that, that uh, things were still as bad as it was when they, you know, when they were kids, the same mistakes kept happening we just decided to focus on dyslexia. And, and I think after Mislabeled Child, we were also really, uh, we did have a chapter on gifted kids in Mislabeled Child, which, which I would have thought is a little atypical for, you know, otherwise a focusing school problems book. But it's funny, I, I remember mentioning this to my mother who was a teacher and she said, so you're going to have a book about school problems. I hope you have a, a chapter about gifted kids because they're really hard to raise. <laughs> so I thought, oh, she, she recognized that. You know, here we came and think, oh, this is our own synthesis. You know, who knows? You know, that was pretty good. You know, she was in her 70s, you know. So, so that's, that's how it came out. And then we realized that, that it, was, it was so hard to confront the number 
like all the lenses were wrong about dyslexia. And if you, if you did a Google search on images, it was like, you would have thought dyslexia means this. Cause like every image was someone doing this. Yes. <laughs> like if an alien landed, dyslexia means you have a headache. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny, you know? And, and so that's why I think we felt like it would be important after Miss Label tried to write a book on dyslexia to just, they had to undergo a paradigm shift because it was, it was so wrong. So much of what people were assuming. Well, I, because I think, you know, 10 years ago, when you're writing that book, a lot's happened in 10 years. And I think a lot can be attributed to dyslexic advantages, a dyslexic advantage in seeding this thought and shifting people's view, you know, all the way to where now you've got made by dyslexia, Richard Branson's charity, wanting to teach every single teacher in the world the advantages of dyslexia, and that's their mission. And, you know, like, was there anyone else, to your knowledge, writing books, or who, who, who was there before you or alongside you that was talking about dyslexia as an advantage at that time? Well, if you just, I, I'm, I'm always fond of history. So if you really go back, if you really go back, the first definition of dyslexia, the statement was from that doctor, he would be the smartest lad in school if the teaching were always oral. So, yes. yeah. He was so in they, England. That was in England. I know. And, Isn't uh, that great? <laughs> he, was at, he was at Harvard. Uh, what was he? He's on Harley Street Doctor. Oh, and, great. Yeah, great. It's a Fantastic story that is in the BMJ, isn't it? It's the first. You know, I, ha I have to go back and see or archives yeah. of ophthalmology or something, but it was a visual yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. So if you really go back, all the way back, it was always there. And even yes. when, we, when we tried to do the research on this, and Tom West has been great about uh, identifying this. So and finding that in the, in the records and talking about the early history. But, you know, I think it was Alexander Banatine also noticed the career choices and certainly Norm Geshwin. My dad knew Norm Geshwin. He had also recognized some of the positive sides of it, but it, it had sort of, you know, it comes out in a medical journal that it fitters away. And, yeah. you know, and I think that sometimes, you know, especially if you have literacy specialists who might be really great at, you know, derivations of words for spelling that, that they don't see the gift at all, right? They, yeah, like, yeah. I, you know, that I can't understand why they can't, you know, remember. So it, it's a little funny because, you know, the people who would be teaching, th there's a lot to learn from them, but they also might be the, the least aware in terms of the big picture of the person. And so that, yeah. that that's a dilemma because, and also if you focus too much on dyslexia being reading. Yes. Is amazing mistake, you know, that's the problem when a person has only had training in reading rather than cognitive, you know, abilities or, or weaknesses, they don't, they can't see beyond just reading. Yes. And so so I, I think some of the mistakes have been because, you know, there's, there, you know, some of the big picture 
advantages and strengths are really really require an openness and an understanding enough of cognitive science and cognition. And I think a lot of dyslexic people, when they grow up with uh, different views on things, they may be more open, you know, and, and also get a spark of recognition. But, you know, sometimes, you know, I think if you go just the opposite, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that some people whose clear expertise is spelling, they don't get it. Because they're yeah. not looking at things like, you know, metaphor generation, or they're not looking things at like design divergent thinking and things like that, because it's not on the roadmap. They're really looking at spelling ability and maybe read aloud. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So the book came out, Dyslexic Advantage. You, you met this challenge of dyslexia being like uh, visually looking <laughs> like a headache and then realizing actually these mind strengths that you, you came up with these four strengths, uh, ma- reasoning strengths, what material reasoning, what are they again? Material reasoning, interconnected, narrative, and dynamic. And uh, we could go on a whole talk about that, but you really have to read this book or listen to this book on Audible, etc. And if you want some tasters, we've got some podcast episodes where we've done kind of like a quick summary of it and encouraging you to go and read that chapter, etc. What happened after the book? Um, you know, we traveled around and we gave talks and we grew the nonprofit, just dyslexicadvantage.org. We have a number of kids programs to, to do talent development because that's another hole that we thought was there. The fact that almost all these remarkable people that we interview say the most important thing is I focused on my strengths. Yes. I tried to leverage my weaknesses, but we didn't see a lot of opportunity there. So, you know, we have a STEM program. We have a young writers program where it doesn't matter about your spelling yeah. your grammar. It, it's focusing on, on your ideas and your storytelling. We had called college scholarships where it's not dependent on a GPA because Many dyslexic students get disqualified because they may their GPA may fall underneath it, and yet they yeah. have huge, you know, off the charts talents and abilities. So yeah. you know, so this is the idea. And then we have a, a a monthly newsletter, monthly newsletters actually, inspirational stories, but also practical information, how to build on strengths and how to tailor your education to the students that you're working with. So that's, that's all for Dyslexic Advantage. And in the last couple of years also, we set up a social um, profit organization, NeuroLearning, which has online dyslexia tests because that we sought to, to address the problem that to get formal testing might cost you thousands of dollars. And there are just so many people who couldn't afford it. We also saw that many people would get the testing and then not have any practical information. So what's really different about this test, which is available in in tablets, because you have to take it on there, is that um, it um, comes with a report, maybe 20, 30 pages of report based on your responses done in the tablet. And actually, if you qualify in the highest category for dyslexia, you qualify for Bookshare. So over here, 
that means the free ebooks, you know, that you can use in your ebook reader. Oh, fantastic. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so that, that's interesting. I, I, I came across your app on the app store. We'll put the link in the description. What's it called again? Remind me. Neuro learning. Neuro learning. Okay. Yeah. And so what you're saying is when someone does that assessment, I think it's $40 or $39 or something, then, and they're in the high band. Yeah. They get access to, and a lot of people don't realize this service is there for people with dyslexia assessments. Could Bookshare, you? For Bookshare, the completely free is paid for by the federal government in the United States. So there's a cost if you're overseas. Okay. So there's a yearly cost because it's all, you know, most of, actually it's a good group of people that are um, in charge of Benetech, but most of the costs of their nonprofit is paying for the rights to have all these books. So, so they are the ebook only, you know, but if you qualify for Bookshare, then Learning Ally, which has a volunteer, it used to be Reading for the Blind Dyslexic, has volunteers that, that actually human read the books. So if you qualify for Benetech, you also qualify for Learning Ally. So that's another benefit. Fantastic. And, yeah. and often, and I think this is something that is, is sometimes you don't realize until you start looking for a book. Not every book is on Audible. Not every book is an audio book. And especially when it comes to textbooks and all sorts of more obscure books, etc. And a lot more books are on this service than are on other Audible services. Is that correct? Yeah, I'd say, you know, it's, you know, I hate to, best to go to their website. I mean, I think it's, it's like a million books or more than that. And I know Learning Ally, it, you can put in a request. So that's a standard thing that over here in the States, at the beginning of the summer, most try to get the book list for the fall. And they try to have a book recorded to have online before the school year starts. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, great. great. Yeah. And how much is it to get onto Learning Ally or whatever if you don't have a dyslexia assessment? You know, again, you'd better check with them. But I think it's around 120 bucks a year or something like that. Okay. So it's unlimited books, you know. So, and some people, you know, honestly, for Bookshare, you know, they might use Voice Dream Reader. And so they get the electronic yeah. book for a, a professional voice. And that's almost better. But for, you know, for certain people, it's better to have a human read. Yeah. Okay. So um, Dyslexic Advantage, you've got these programs, you've got this community, you've got the newsletter. Where, where are you now? Where, where are things going now? What, what's happening right at the moment? And what's, what's on the horizon? Well, I think our news horizon is we've started courses. So we have um, just because of all the changes, the pandemic and uh, many or either part or full-time homeschooling. The problem is, so we're, we're doing the homeschooling course. There's a, it's just a video on demand course. And we've also started uh, a, a course for teachers too. Okay. Yeah. And we recently had a whole cohort of principals and training come coming through and it was fantastic because, you know, the one thing that's always uh, surprised me is that a lot of educational materials for teachers don't have 
sort of examples. Like it's it's all theoretical. You see PowerPoints, you see bullet slides and things like that. They don't yeah. actually show um, dyslexic students at different ages. And they also don't show dyslexic adults talking about their dyslexia. So, you know, from, from the start, that's what we wanted. And, and I do talk about mind strengths as well. So it's a it's a uh, it's a course for teachers where we think it's a comprehensive approach to dyslexia an introductory approach to dyslexia but i i you know i think it's been wonderful getting feedback from the teachers because they said you know we never had any of this before and Fantastic. you know i i don't realize all these kids might have been dyslexic i never thought to mention it because we didn't use that word here and so uh, you know, I don't know that you had, did, did you have this problem over there where you are, where, the, you know, I think what happened over here, a very influential group of school psychologists, NASC, they came up with, maybe it's about 15, 10, 15 years ago, pronouncements about not to use the term dyslexia. There's no point in using the term dyslexia is what they said, you know, it's reading achievement. Do they make achievement or do they not, you know, and as a result, we had all these kids who were never identified. I mean, if if you just don't meet standards for reading achievement, there's no reason to give you accommodations because you just can't read, you know, and you might need a little extra help. That was the idea. But with without identifying dyslexia specifically, and as you and I know, it is not limited to simple reading comprehension, then those students, they fail to identify needs for modifications, need for accommodations, they fail to identify strengths, you know, they fail to be connected with mentors or inspirational stories that, that apply to them, all that kind of thing. And they cannot connect to the science because otherwise you're a poor reader. That's all you are. Yes. <laughs> you know? yes. And, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, I find it so helpful thinking of dyslexia like the car, the manual car versus the automatic car. The issue isn't in the engine. The issue is that you have a different gearbox. Your way of engaging with information is different. And so you can be a, a five gear Ferrari compared to an automatic Ferrari. If you don't know how to go up the gears, you're in trouble. There's nothing wrong with the car. The issue is your skill set. And so you need someone to get in the car and go, oh, we just figured out you're a manual car. You need to learn how to go up the gears. And then all of a sudden they're going at 70 miles an hour and they're like, wow, I've yeah. got power in my engine. Yeah. Yeah. Great analogy. It's a great analogy. Absolutely. It is. It's tools. And you get you get put in contact with all the things that, you yeah. know, since this first got developed. Yeah. And, you, yeah. and you know, I tried that. And it worked for me, yeah. you know, and that's why you do see I was in remedial, I was failed twice, and then suddenly I popped up in honors. Why was that? Is because you weren't given the tools, you know? Yes. So. And I, what I found personally is the moment I respected the term dyslexia, you know, uh, 15 years ago when I was identified, I thought to myself, I I've seen a change happen every single year and a significant change since I read your book actually, your book was what I would say triggered off Bullet Map Academy, quite frankly. You know, it was your book that I, I thought, my goodness me, children need positive skills for dyslexia and, and understanding their dyslexia. And, and so with the dyslexia, the, the, when I took my dyslexia seriously, 
especially since your book, I started to ask myself this question. I said, so if I'm dyslexic, maybe dyslexia is getting in the way of my productivity and my life as a professional. Maybe I could learn from other people who are dyslexic, like Richard Branson and others, or people who are using that terminology. Maybe they've got some common themes that I can take into my life and improve it. And that, when I took that seriously, that link seriously to try and find that pattern, then things really started clicking into place for me. And that was so important. For example, using the analogy of the stick shift car or a stick shift thinker, you might be an 18 gear, very dyslexic person. You've got 18 gears in your vehicle instead of four gears or six gears. You're still dyslexic, mildly dyslexic, four gears, moderately dyslexic, six gears, extremely <laughs> dyslexic, 18 gears. You're like a truck. A truck driver drives 18 gears. There's no way a truck can get up to 70 miles an hour in first gear. A Ferrari could. A five-gear Ferrari maybe could get away with it. But when you find out someone who's also a manual driver, as it were, of another truck, and they start saying, yes, when I'm doing a hill start, I do this. And when I get into third gear, when I'm going down this hill and I get into a valley and I do this, you're like, oh, my goodness, that's so useful. Because you find someone who's got the same vehicle as you <laughs> and yeah. you learn how to drive it in life. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we did fight some battles along the way. There was a huge pushback on the word dyslexic instead yes. of <laughs> dyslexia. A person, I'm a person with dyslexia rather than dyslexic. They found it, they found it offensive. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a, that's the idea of the dyslexic advantage. You know, it's a, it's a part of, you know, the way you are, where you think. And, and it's a, it's a great thing. It's the thing that, people should really say, you know, I love it. I, that's what I want, you know? So, so there, there were battles like that, as you say, but, but also people complained, you've got these incredible people and how does that apply to me? And so there were people who were really like offended that we would use examples of, you know, remarkable people, even if these remarkable people were like at the cutting edges, this is not like, I don't know, you know, I don't know, I don't want, you know, this is not like a, a standard, like, I don't know, like a, a, a neurologic disability of the brain, you know, the fact that people are like, you know, the head of Apple design or something like that, it, it, it really is dramatic or that you invent the CD-ROM or, the, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it, it's part of the legacy and I think it's a great thing. I don't think it should be hidden. Now, there's a lot of people doing remarkable things, you, you included, that maybe not be Richard Branson, you know what I mean? But yeah. it's still remarkable and a lot of accomplishments. And, you know, Brock always told me when, when people would get upset about positive examples, you know, just saying, you know, I'm learning, you know, when I was trying to really get better on the guitar, you learn from someone who plays well or something that you admire about his playing. That's how it is, you know? And so a lot of the positive examples, I think it, it's a distraction. And usually, usually it's, it's someone who's, you know, occasionally that's come across from dyslexic people themselves who feel ambivalent or angry about the idea of a, a strength or a positive gift. I mean, there's sometimes you do get some weird things like that. Sometimes you get it, it's a parent 
who feels like they're not being taken seriously and, and they feel like it, the, the magnitude of the problems are not as significant. But, you know, more often than not, you know, it's a welcome message and it's empowering, you know. And once, once they begin to see that all my personal hurdles are, you know, are similar to other people's that, and they don't take it as personally, they think, you know, okay, what do I need to learn? How can I, how can I strategize? Because yes. strategy is a great part of the strengths of being dyslexic. Very young children that we would see are very strategic. And the tricky thing about testing some of these kids, I could tell that they were trying to read me. <laughs> You know, when when, I, when they were trying to see if they did that and what my answer would be. I mean, it's just all this kind of stuff. Yes. Totally strategic. Yes. And, and and so all these things. And then and the, the positive side of that strategy is you give them the tools at the end of your testing. Don't give it before because it's going to screw up all your testing. <laughs> give it to them at the end and they'll run with it. You know, they yes. needed information. They needed to, like, it's a corrective lens. You know, you, you're 20, 500 vision. You put on the glasses. You're like, okay, now I see where I am. Now I see why I've had setbacks and why some ways are blocked to me, but now I can open myself into figuring out how to get around them. So, well, Fernet, that's been fantastic. I think we're well over our our time. <laughs> um, it's, I, you've covered the whole story arc from you know before having children and then waking up to it through your children. It's such a classic story isn't it you know how many people are in the field of dyslexia because their own child That's had dyspraxia or dyslexia or dysgraphia or s some learning difficulty like that that and then they discover this juxtaposition of the incredible abilities with some incredible difficulties it's it's fascinating to hear how many people are in that scenario yeah yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's the idea is until you really walk in the shoes yourself, you don't really understand. And yeah. I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of benefit by the fact it's so common. And, you know, I think, you know, it's like standing on the, the shoulders of giants. I mean, I think there's a lot of incredible people that if they hadn't been touched personally some way, they couldn't have woken up to the possibility. So I do think it's a very exciting time. I mean, I think, I think it's great to have schools like yours. I think it's great to have more people talking about their dyslexia and the positive aspects of dyslexia and being unashamed to, you know, to relate everything, to not just stop at, you know, I'm a bad speller, but to just go, you know, one thing I've noticed that I can do that other people can't do is fill in the blank. Because yeah. whenever people can do that, you know, they're giving, you know, just one more step and one more piece of information to people who are hungry out there to find out more. I'd like to just, could we finish off by you telling us a little bit about how you teach homeschoolers and teachers? You know, like I, I find that, that that sounds really quite interesting. How long does it take to do this training if you're so a teacher? Yeah, so they're all recorded lectures and okay. the homeschoolers course, in order to keep the cost down, it's a set of five uh, recorded lectures and then the discussion forum and then access to all of our premium magazines because 
I think we're up to about 60 issues now. That's the one thing that I, I have to do every month is I write two magazines a month. So it's really busy. But so the, the court, the homeschoolers course is that. And then okay, so have, is that like five one-hour lectures or something? Is that? I like that about that. Okay. Maybe over a little less. Yeah. And then the, the other course is also uh, taught through Seattle Pacific University if you want graduate student credits or um, a little bit cheaper for just teacher clock hour credits at Dyslexic Advantage. It's the same course. Okay. And that has 10 modules and it has, you know, videos as well as um, discussion questions that have to be answered. That's a little bit more formal because you have to have certain, like there's little quizzes and there's discussion questions. You have to respond to other students and things like that to meet the requirements for clock hours for teachers. But okay. it's a good thing. I would say for if, if you have a, uh, uh, you, have, you have your students in school and you're concerned that they may not know how to help their students. They need to get clock hours anyway. It's a great resource. Okay. So, yes. Yeah. So we'll put links to that in the show notes because we get a lot of teachers saying to us, look, Darius, what, what should we do as teachers? And I'm kind of like, do you know what? I can't. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm oh, kind that's of struggling. Uh, yeah, I love it. Yeah, no, actually, it's we've gotten great reviews, and um, right. okay. and I think there's some wonderful discussions taking place on the discussion forum. It's a private discussion forum for teachers, and so a lot of them are sharing their resources as well as their their problem situations and things like that. It's a great resource. Okay, fantastic. Thanks. Well. Burnett, we could talk more, and I'm very tempted to talk more about Dyslexic Advantage, but we've not got time. Maybe <laughs> another time we can get you on board and talk about the actual book itself and the mind strengths and so on. But this has been fantastic, Burnett. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure getting to know you, and I think you're doing a wonderful job. Love your videos, so everyone should watch your videos. <laughs> Do you really? I was kind of surprised when I, when I. Um, joined your community i've been meaning to do it for years actually and i just never did it you know to uh to subscribe to the newsletter and uh i didn't use my bullet map academy email or anything i just said darius i'm a big fan etc darius and uh, <laughs> when you recognize my name i was like oh my goodness <laughs> yeah the world is this big yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. great well such a pleasure thank you for that okay, bye-bye yeah. bye-bye this podcast is sponsored by DyslexiaProductivityCoaching.com. It's my day job when I'm not hosting this podcast. Tell me, do you know what you want to achieve in the workplace, but you're struggling with how to achieve it? Maybe you suspect some traits of dyslexia are getting in the way. Well, that's where Dyslexia Productivity Coaching comes in, because we give you a simple productivity system for your Apple devices that harnesses the creativity that comes with your dyslexia. It includes proven methods like note-taking, reminders, speech-to-text, mind mapping, and more, all tailored to your needs. It'll free up your time and help you achieve outstanding results. Book a complimentary call to discuss it with me, and if you do it soon, I may also be available to coach you personally via Zoom. So don't be shy. Go to dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com or swipe up and book it now.